good to see everybody here this morning, ready for our lesson today. We're in session uh, 13. We're actually looking at Revelation 7, so that's where we're going to be. But before we get started on it, um, I kind of want to tell you a little bit about where my mind is and where I'm thinking as we're also looking at the uh, the graphic I have up on the board. So I've reminded I've got the kind of the squiggly lines that represent the ups and downs of life. And then over the top of that is a straight line that is uh, what we've been talking about earlier in earlier chapters with respect to just the timeline of, of life in history, uh, Old Testament, New Testament, and just the whole idea that we are in the, the days and, and, and years and months and weeks of of the end times. And there are some times in history when it seems like the end times or the end of the end of times, uh, judgment day and eternity is going to happen any day now. And then there's other times in history when it seems like it's a far off. And so I think if you talk to most believers today, uh, looking at the type of change and, and just how much turmoil there is in the world today and certainly in our society, that it certainly feels much more like we are in the, the uh, end times and perhaps the end of the end times is closer than we think. So anyway, what I've been thinking about is asking the question of what is the difference that having faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, what is the difference that that makes in, uh, in terms of dealing with the ups and downs of life? And so one of the ways that I've characterized that up here on the board is with this kind of little spiral figure or graphic at the bottom end of one of the dips, if you will, of the ups and downs of life. That, and that, that's my way of sort of depicting the fact that sometimes when we get into that dip of life, we can get stuck there and it can feel like we're on this uh, treadmill that we're going round and around, but we're not getting anywhere. And so the question is, is how can a person find any sense of serenity or any sense of joy or any sense of gratitude in their life if what they're dealing with in that moment is, uh, is, is a struggle, is hardship, has... Uh, suffering associated with it? Has loss uh, associated with it? What Do we have anything? Does our faith in Jesus offer anything that not only helps us survive that moment, but actually lifts us above that and we can see it in perspective beyond the perspective of just the fact that this crummy thing is happening in my life and I'm having to uh, deal with it. And so I put up on the board a reference to Romans 8.18, where in Romans 8.18, what Paul says is that, I'm going to kind of paraphrase since I don't have my Bible in front of me. He says that I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. And so one of the things that he's talking about there is that he's saying that, that whatever it is that we go through in our present day life, whether it's the struggles as, that goes along with the dips of life, or whether it's the happy moments 
that are the interlude between the suffering moments, that what he says is those are the present sufferings. And what he's reminding us of, at least from a faith perspective, a faith in Jesus, is that we are looking ahead and are aware of the blessing of heaven that we're already waiting for, that we've already been promised. And that because we have been promised that, that gives us a different perspective when it comes to dealing with life's hardships. That in other words, that if we can take an eternity perspective... That eternity perspective does not mean that somehow we're in denial about the struggles of life. That somehow we're just uh, pretending they don't exist. It isn't that. It's that we're able to see it through the lens of God's love and mercy and grace for us, even when it seems as if and feels in that moment as if it's not present. That that's what an eternity perspective is. And the reason why I've been thinking about this is that as we've been working through these visions in, uh, or these verse, uh, chapters in Revelation, it, it's like there's, a, there's like an up and down uh, aspect of it. One vision, and we'll see that today, is in chapter 7, is talking about the struggles on earth. Well, in chapter 6, we looked at the glories of heaven. And what occurred to me was, was that those two visions of, or those two perspectives of what's going on in heaven at the same time of what's going on on earth seem so detached from each other. It's almost as if what's going on in heaven, the, the, those that are in heaven are completely oblivious and, and somewhat indifferent to what's going on to us here on earth. Jesus knows, God knows, the Lamb knows, but there's two different perspectives of life. And so I was, as I was thinking about that, I was saying, gosh, why is that? And I thought, well, maybe it's because what Jesus really wants us to be able to develop while we're here on earth is that we don't get so hooked into the worries and fears and, and resentments and all those things that go along with life here on earth, we don't get so controlled by that that we lose sight of what's going to happen later on. What happens later on is eternity. And when you know you have eternity, when you know you are God's beloved, then that is what makes all the difference in the world in terms of how you handle and how you deal with and how you make sense of what goes on during the present day suffering. So, so what I'm challenging uh, the class to do here, what I'm challenging you, challenging you to do is just kind of give that some thought. Let, let that sort of percolate in your minds a little bit this week as you think about that. And next time we meet, we can kind of talk a little bit more about that, of, of in what way does that eternity perspective shift the way you think about the things that go on in this world. Okay, so let's get into our, our lesson for today. It's uh, Revelation 7, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 17. And as is always the case, that is our hope and our dream that we get through the entire lesson, and we'll get to see if that happens. So we start with verses 1 to 3. He says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, 
to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Okay, so the very first thing that kind of jumps off the page there is the symbolic use of the number four. We remember that the number four has to do with uh, completeness of something. So you have the four corners of the earth, the four winds, etc. And so the idea here is, is that that all of this is under God's control, that the four angels are being held back from letting the four winds loose to bring harm upon uh, the earth in in, in some sense of a natural disaster. And so then what happens is he says, then another angel comes from the east. In in, in Jewish thought in, in John's day, um, the thought was was that anything that comes from the east bears good tidings. And so that's so, sort of the sense of it that we get here. Um, one of the th- reasons for that is that the east is where the rising sun is first shown. And so it's seen as a, as a bringer of life, anything that comes, uh, anything comes from the east. And so what he says is, is that this angel has the power uh, of the living God in the sense of having this seal. And so we want to talk about what it means to have this seal. So we might remember in uh, John's day that uh, whenever a king or some uh, uh, a royal official or, or judicial official would uh, put his seal on a scroll, he would have that they would, they would uh, put a little dab of wax on the scroll as it was rolled up to keep it sealed, secured. And then the official would take his signet ring, which would have an emblem on it, and he would press his, uh, his ring down into the warm wax and make the impression of the, of the ring. And then that meant that the only person who could break that seal was someone who was authorized by the king or by the judge in order to do that. So that's the idea of this seal. Now, now what, what, uh, what, what Revelation is talking about is that this is the seal of, of the living God, which would have been a direct confrontation with the seal of a dead God in the sense of the Caesars. Now we remember again that in John's day, the number one idolatrous practice was that of Caesar worship. That uh, Christians living in Roman, Roman occupied areas were required to at least once a year and maybe more depending on the whims of whoever was in power then, would have to admit or have to confess that Caesar is Lord. And so the, that Caesar and subsequent Caesars or, or past Caesars were human. They were not divine. They believed they were divine, but they weren't divine. And so they would live and die. And what John is saying here through Jesus is that the seal is of 
the living God. So I want to uh, bring to mind, bring to your mind this verse from Ezekiel 9, 4 to 6. It gives us a sense of, again, this idea of a seal. Uh, God said to, uh, God said to him, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. So the detestable things here are those things associated with, uh, with idolatry. As I listened, he said to the others, follow him through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter the old men, the young men and women, the mothers and children. But do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the old men who were in front of the temple. And while they were killing and I was left alone, I fell face down crying out, Alas, sovereign Lord, are you going to destroy the entire remnant of Israel in this outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? So again, the the vision here is for Ezekiel is that there is a reference being made to God's wrath and punishment of those in Israel and Judah who were idolaters. And the thing we want to remember about that is that not everyone in in Israel and Judah, though they could have been called ancestors of the original children of Israel, the original 12 tribes, that just because they were born into those families... It just they were born into those tribes did not necessarily mean that they were believers in Yahweh, that they were believers in the one true God. In fact, what happened in many of the history of those tribes was that they accommodated themselves to the idolatry of the society or the culture of which they were a part of. So Canaanite culture, Egyptian culture, brought with it these, uh, these practices of, of idolatry, and God got very angry at that. And that is part of this, uh, the deaths of, of these people was part of him exercising his wrath on those that had turned to idolatry. Now, a couple of things that are kind of interesting in, uh, in the Ezekiel passage in, in verse uh, 4. He says that the put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament, that that, that, that language is really language of repentance, that those who are seeing what's going on are saddened by it. They're repenting of it. They're saying, we see this and we recognize it and we identify it. We call it out, as they say today. We call it out for what it is. It is idolatry. So it says something about the fact that if we were to see that going on today, it would be our obligation and our responsibility spiritually to call that out as well. The other thing that jumps off the page for me is that notice that, uh, that God is instructing those who are going to do, to exercise the, the killing, is that it's going to begin at the sanctuary. The sanctuary would have been the, the temple, it would have been the synagogue, it would have been the place of worship. And it's kind of surprising that he would start there, but it sort of suggests again the idea that just because someone knows where the address of the church is does not mean that that person is necessarily a believer. 
just because that person might even be someone who frequents the church, someone who is participating in the church. At the end of the day, we hope that that individual or that or those people are believers. But at the end of the day, God knows the heart. He knows the heart of faith when he sees it. And so in this case, the people that were at the sanctuary were the play. That was the place where the first deaths were occurring. And it indicates that being at the sanctuary is not the same as having the sanctuary in you. And so then the other verse that uh, I referenced there on your outline is 2 Timothy 2.19, where again the word sealed is used. It says, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows whose are His, those who are His. So again, it's just this idea that God knows who belongs to Him. God knows who those are of faith. And, and if you want to remain in that sealed state, let's use that, uh, that phrase. If you want to remain in that sealed state, then just keep your faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. It's, it's really as, as easy as that in some sense of it, though I would argue that it's not so easy in the world that we live in today. Okay, now we get to the next part where we see some more numbers. In verse 4, he says, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And so then he goes through and he lists the tribes that he lists. And I say it that way, you'll understand what I mean when, uh, when, when we explain it in a couple minutes. So he says, From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. Now we remember a few lessons back, we talked about the way that, that uh, numerology or numbers are used in the book of Revelation, and for that matter, in a broader sense, in apocryphal language. And uh, so one of the ways that you can understand numbers is you could, of course, take it literally, 144,000 means 144,000, and no more, no less. Or you can take it symbolically, and we're going to take the view that this is symbolic. However, there are some religions who have historically taken that number as a literal number to mean that there would only be 144,000 believers of that religion in, uh, in heaven at the, in terms of eternity. And, and those religions, a Mormon comes to, to mind as well as Jehovah's Witnesses. Both of those religions were maintaining that uh, position until the number of believers in the religion, in their own religion, exceeded that number. And so then they had to kind of make some adjustments. And so my understanding of it is that the, their teaching is that there are different uh, tiers of heaven. There's different sort of layers of heaven. And the top tier is where uh, the 144,000 in terms of at least Mormon belief will be. And that there would be a greater number of lesser 
people at the lesser tiers of heaven still in heaven. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses believed, and this is again my understanding from my own research, they believed that the number 144,000 were the number of believers who would be raptured into heaven prior to the great uh, tribulation. So that's an entirely different perspective on it. But again, that number had to be adjusted. I mean, the the teaching had to be adjusted when the number of Jehovah's Witnesses uh, exceeded uh, 144,000. So again, from our own Lutheran perspective, we take the view that this is a symbolic number. That means a great multitude of people but that there is a limited number only in the sense that it's not universal. It's, it's not all people will be saved, but it would be that the people that would be saved are those who believe in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. A couple of things that, that are kind of interesting when we look at the listing, though, of the tribes. Uh, the, first, uh, the first thing that's interesting is that the tribe of Judah is listed first. And the thought there is, is because that's where the Messiah came from. Jesus came from that, so that's listed first, as opposed to Reuben, who normally would be listed first because he's the oldest, but in this list he's listed second. The, uh, the, the other thing about it is, is that Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin are mentioned, but what's interesting is that Joseph is mentioned instead of Ephraim or Dan. And I, there, aren't, there isn't really any explanation as to why Ephraim isn't listed. There is a reference in uh, Hosea 5 verse 3. It says, I know all about Ephraim. Israel is not hidden from me. Ephraim, you have now turned to prostitution. Israel is corrupt. And so again, a reminder that in, uh, in the Old Testament prophets, uh, when God would lament through the prophet about the idolatry of the people, is that very often they would use, he would use uh, language of marriage, husband and wife uh, kind of idea, where God is the husband and the people of faith are, or Israel are, are the, is the wife. And so when the wife would give herself over to, to uh, idolatry, that it was almost as if she was prostituting herself to another man, in this case, to another God. And so that's why the reference here is used to prostitution. Um, and, but that certainly would have clu- included the temple prostitution that was part of the uh, idolatrous practices of the Canaanites. Um, but, and then the reason for Dan not being mentioned is that in Jewish tradition, it was that the Antichrist or the anti-Messiah would come from the tribe of Dan because of its idolatry as well. So you can see that uh, idolatry was a big thing as far as God was concerned. God said, I am the true God. And, and the reason why that's such a big deal is because a person's soul is at stake, refusing to believe in God and God alone, or saying, well, I can believe in God, but I'll also believe in all the other gods. No, God says one God, and it's one God that brings about salvation uh, in your life, not uh, multiple gods. Okay, let's go to the next page, then page uh, verse 9 and 10. He says, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. 
they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. So there's the clue in verse nine that the number 144,000 is a symbolic number. See where it says that standing before me was what a great multitude that no one could count. So that's the reference back to the 144,000 that now we know that that was a large number, uh, more than you could count, but not a number restricted to the amount of 144,000. The other part of it is notice the inclusivity of heaven. People today who are um, very keen on the idea that uh, Christianity ought to be inclusive and, and it shouldn't be exclusive. Well, here's a great verse to suggest that, that God's love and God's gospel through Jesus and through faith in Jesus is open to everyone of every nation and tribe and people and language that, that, uh, that remaining true in our faith to him and, and, and in him uh, it, the kingdom is open to uh, to all people. I think sometimes people say that, well, you Christians, you're you're just exclusive. You know, you're you're just a select group. You think? Well, they base that on the fact that, yeah, we're not universalists. We we don't say that that everybody gets saved, regardless of the belief you have, regardless of the name of the God you have. We're not we're not universalists. But uh, we do say that, yeah, Jesus himself says, through, uh, through Christ, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me, John 14, 6. Yeah, Jesus himself says. But it's through him that heaven is open to everyone. And the reason for that, again, is why? Well, Jesus alone was sinless. He lived the perfect life. He was born without a sinful nature, being the Son of God. And his, he shed his blood so that the price for our sinfulness could be paid and we then could then be forgiven and through forgiveness have entry into heaven. So that's the, again, that's the idea of that. Now, now the, what we hear is this loud voice being sung by people who are souls who had these white robes. In other words, the, 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 those who were have been martyred for the faith. They're, they're standing before the throne and they're singing this great hymn, Salvation Belongs to Our God. I love this idea, Salvation Belongs to Our God. Why? Because He's the one that invented it. And what does that mean? Well, if He's the one that invented it, He's the one that gets to decide how it's distributed to people. And God in His love for us has decided that the way to distribute it to people is through faith. That by the act of His grace and His love for us, He distributes it through faith to us. Faith in Jesus is what enables us to be recipients of salvation. Verse 11, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying... Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know, and he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. 
And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So we have this great scene again. It's a a heavenly scene. But of the question that gets asked is, who are they who are standing in the, there in the white robes, the, the robes of God's righteousness covering them. And the answer is that, that they are they who were martyred out of this great tribulation uh, that had occurred. And so they were martyred, but they were made white, the robes were made white in the blood of the Lamb. So the reference there that I have is in Hebrews 9, 13 to 15, as we see where it says, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. So it's a reference to the Old Testament rituals of sacrifice. He says, well, then how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death? so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So again, a reminder there, he's saying that that the, the rituals of sacrifice in the Old Testament, as imperfect as they were, were kind of a, a, a forerunner to the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus would make. That the uh, sacrifices of bulls and pigeons and lambs and, and whatever was the prescribed uh, sacrifice for sin was incomplete. It did bring about uh, this devotion to God. But the thing that brought about ultimate forgiveness of sin was the real blood, was the blood of Jesus himself, the perfect Lamb of God who was sinless. His sacrifice is what earned forgiveness for us, and not just for us, but for any of the believers in the Old Testament as well. And so there's this great, uh, this great picture then given of the joy of heaven where he says that that he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. So now we kind of see this language of of the shepherd, and we're reminded of the 23rd Psalm. And again, some of the the things that we saw in uh, when we studied the Gospel of John, particularly in John 10, as Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. He says, never again will they, if we think of the shepherd and the sheep, never again will the sheep hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. And then here's a, here's a great little twist. For the lamb at the center will be what? He will be their shepherd. The lamb becomes the shepherd in Jesus. I just love that. And so then he, the shepherd, will lead the sheep to springs of living water. Again, reminiscent of the uh, 23rd Psalm. And then this great little part here where we describe, and we we read this all the time at uh, Christian funerals, 
and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The joy of heaven will be ours, and we look forward to that. No deprivation, no want, no abandonment. We are sheltered. We are with Christ then forever. That's the joy that we have. That's, that's the joy that prompts gratitude in our lives every day. So we go back to the board again, and we look again. Life goes up and down, doesn't it? But the ups and downs of life is what our present sufferings are about. But see, from a Christian point of view, we have a different perspective. Again, it's not that we're ignorant. It's not that we're indifferent to the ups and downs of life. We suffer them just the same as anybody does. But the difference is, is that we're looking at it through the lens of an eternity perspective. And that's what I want you to take with you today. So as we uh, kind of think about those things, as we look ahead to next week, we'll be looking at chapter 8 and getting uh, yet some more perspective. Uh, let's think about that. Let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we have with uh, each other today. We thank you for the way that your word speaks to us, written so long ago. And yet that word speaks to us in a way as if it was written yesterday. It's timeless and it's a blessing to us. So I simply pray, Lord, that you would continue to challenge us in our day-to-day -day life to take, that, to take that eternity perspective, to see it through your eyes, to see it that, that yeah, we're, we're looking at life in a radically different way. And that as we look ahead to the joy of heaven, that that gives us a courage and that gives us a sense of, of uh, purpose and meaning in life today to share that good news with others. Watch over us again, dear Lord, until we're together again. And we pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen.